Welcome to the Envision Center Podcast, where we tell the stories of the residents, the personnel, and the community of Northwest Georgia Public Housing. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to the Envision Center Podcast. On today's show, we're talking with Christy McCosley. She's a resident of Northwest Georgia Public Housing, and she has an amazing story. Christina, if you would kind of take us to the beginning, I guess, how your journey began, um, how did it end up, and then how you end up actually in public housing. So I'm going to have a pretty basic like childhood, but there was a lot of trauma. I really feel like trauma has a lot to do with a lot of the things that we deal with as adults. Unchecked trauma, rather. Um, I used drugs for most of my adulthood, and in 2016, um, my children were taken out of my custody. I had two kids at the time, and I was, um, it was highly recommended that I go to inpatient rehab, which I did. It took me like 20 months to finish the program, um, and I had a child, I had my third child while I was in rehab, so left rehab with two children. Um, my oldest was with her father, and is still with her father. Um, went into transitional housing with them. I mean, literally, it, literally, we had to start completely over. Um, I had to, I changed jobs. I was a hairdresser before I went to rehab, but I wasn't able to do that when I went back because I still wasn't very disciplined. There was a lot of free time, a lot of idle time, which wasn't very good at that time. Um, living Proof started. Um, while I was in rehab and that that place created a community for me that place created a safe place to be able to open up and talk about stuff because there were things that I should have dealt with while I was in rehab that I haven't dealt with until recently because for some reason it's really hard to create a safe space for people to talk most definitely I can attest to that 100% I think uh, we talk a lot of times but actually for as safe space and people say you know, you can come to me, you can talk to me, but you know, you still very easy to feel very vulnerable mm-hmm. in those situations before. Uh, let me go back. So was that your first time in rehab? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And you was there how long? Um, the whole, entire program. I was there for 20 months. Okay. It was inpatient, months. outpatient, and then aftercare. All right. And so I'm assuming uh, you got on drugs, things got bad and defects came in and mm-hmm. the whole court situation mm-hmm. and. Uh, you end up losing your children. Now, was you court ordered to go to rehab or was it something you just knew it was time to go? No, I was ordered. I, I sat in rehab for four and a half months um, before I realized that I needed to be there. I was pregnant. I went into rehab four and a half months pregnant, weighing about 115 pounds. Oh, wow. And, um, and I sat there um, almost to my due date before I realized that I actually had a problem. It was so ego is a big thing. Ego and pride is a big thing. You know, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. If I'm not ready to admit it to myself, then everything is just in one ear and out the other. And I'm assuming, I don't know, drug of choice, because in this area it seems to be like meth is the mm-hmm. big thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want you to go deep, in, deep into your story, but I'm interested in the environment as well you was in. Because a lot of times I feel like from the outside looking in, it's, it's a pattern mm-hmm. um, that, you know, usually people who are a lot of people who are struggling with drug addictions, 
they are also enabled by their friends who mm-hmm. are also drug addicts. And so it's like they have their own kind of community. Mm-hmm. Um, was that your situation as well? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, so tons of factors. So one, like, you're not going to use drugs around people who don't use drugs, right? So you are either, you either have a serious mask on when you're around people who don't use drugs and, and that kind of relationship doesn't last very long. Uh, because it becomes a lifestyle. For me, it did. I can't speak for everybody. People can use drugs recreationally. Mm-hmm. I was just never that person. I never could just do anything on the weekends. And it wasn't just, it was meth, mm-hmm. but it, it was everything. It was everything at some point in time. It was just anything to numb out. Anything to not have to talk about the hard stuff, to not have to be vulnerable, to not have to work through the stuff. Like, to work through trauma is painful. And nobody wants to feel that. No. Now... Growing up, mm-hmm. how would you describe your childhood? Was it a very functional home, dysfunctional home, normal, just average, everyday home life? Mm. My parents divorced when I was very young, and uh, my father was a violent alcoholic. He used to beat my mother. And my mother never used drugs or alcohol, but she, she still is a very unstable woman. We don't have a relationship. I actually just talked to her the other night for the first time in, in months. And um, she's almost six well she's 60 61 and she's living in a hotel she was living in her car before that i mean she has no drug it's just it baffles me because there's no drug and alcohol use it, there's just like an instability mental health issues mental health but, but i it's unchecked mental health because yeah. there's never been you know it's just really learning where i came from i moved from california when i was 13 to here and that's where my mother's at. My mother's still in California, and she's gone through a lot of trauma. They went through those fires two years ago, and now it's all burning again. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, I, I can't imagine being in her situation, but for a really long time, I always thought, like, I wonder how different my life had been if I would have just stayed, you know, in California with my mother. Mm-hmm. And I get, I'm to this point now where it's silly to even think about that because this is where we're at. Yeah. There's no, you know, there's no changing anything. Like, we could daydream all day long, but it's really a waste of time. And it's up to me. Like, I have these issues because my parents had these issues, and they didn't check themselves. My kids cannot have these issues. Yeah. They cannot have these. Like, they're going to have their own set of stuff, but these same things that unchecked. I went for 32 years with unchecked mental health until this year, 2020, before I was put on any kind of a medication to help stabilize myself. And I didn't, I had no idea. Like, we don't, we don't have honest conversations about yeah. this stuff. It's interesting that you say that... Um... One, what part of California? Northern California. Paradise. Okay. All right. Cause my, uh, my son actually lives in Riverside, okay. California. But uh, it's interesting that you say that. And actually, that, that goes into a deeper conversation. Mm-hmm. We'll, and we'll get back on track. Well, we're not off track. We're having a conversation. Mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think a lot of people, you know, I am bipolar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wasn't diagnosed until I was in my late 40s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, you just you develop, develop coping skills. Mm-hmm. Just for me, fortunately... Uh, having older siblings who struggled with drug addiction, mm-hmm. drugs was just something, and I, and the problems it caused in my home. And I was the youngest, mm-hmm. and the grief it caused my mom. I was just like, drugs was just never an option for me because I just saw the damage and the harm and hurt it did to my mom. But mental health is something mm-hmm. totally different. That mm-hmm. a lot of people have undiagnosed mental health issues mm-hmm. and the stigma attached to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Especially as a black male, most of us, we definitely can't have mental health issues, but I think most of us have some. Mm -hmm. And actually, I was 
going to the doctor because I'm like, you know, I just know I have ADD. Mm-hmm. All my life I've had this attention problem. I just know I have ADD. So I was going to the doctor uh, for that. And the therapist said, well, you know, could be some depression or bipolar there. I'm like, no, nah, not me. I don't stay in the bed. I don't mm-hmm. sleep all day in the dark and actually start finding out more about it. And depression comes in different forms. Mm-hmm. And so I just think you're so correct. So many people struggle with mental health issues in our country and are afraid to get help. And that's what's sad is that we have the capability. We know uh, how mental health affects people. But for some reason, there's still this big stigma around getting help. So I want to. So when you going through this, you in rehab, what was it that kind of said, you know, I need to do, I need to face this. Was it a moment? Was something happening? You know, it's usually that some people say there's that point where you know, like this is it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Uh, learning our uh, our patterns. That's a big deal. That's a yeah. big deal. So I had about, I guess it's 45 days left. I had a month and a half left. I was about to give birth to my third child, and there was a lot of guilt behind that because I wasn't even taking care of my other children. You know, um, and it was like. What am I going to do? Like, I'm in a bubble right now. What am I going to do when I leave? I, I, I can pay bills and I, for a little while, right? I can maintain for a little while, but I really don't know what I'm doing. And if I don't want to end up in the same place, if I don't want to end up here again, which is what happens for a lot of people, it could happen to me again in the future. If I don't get a handle on the things that I have to get a handle on, I could very well end up in the exact same spot or dead. That's the thing. Like sometimes we don't get a second chance. And, and it was, I guess that realization, um, again, but even after that, even immediately, right? Because there were a lot of things that went unchecked in there. I wasted four and a half months of talk time that I could have had with a counselor who could have worked me through things that I just, I could just talk my way just right through it myself. I don't need anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when I left rehab, I had a really, really bad situation happen and I was terrified of the dark. As soon as I got out of rehab, the same day I got out of rehab, I went and used meth. I, it started to get dark, and I thought, no, I'm not, I can't be here by myself. I am not going to be in this apartment by myself. And I left, and I had a moment at that point in time. It was like, my, where do my kids belong here? You know, I'm sitting in this trashy apartment that's like the door's locked with a piece of wood that's nailed, you know what I'm saying, it's mm-hmm. nailed and it's turned. There's like panels of glass missing out of the windows. There's smoke and cigarettes everywhere. People have guns. Like, where are my kids going to be in this room and I'm going to be locked up in a bedroom back there or they're going to be locked up in a bedroom and I'm going to be out here like where do my kids fit in here and I haven't used since then I haven't used I've struggled with other things but I have not used meth since then and it has um it that that was the beginning of my journey people think that rehab is such a horrible place to be I sat in court for the first time in rehab and the judge commended me for being in rehab and I thought this guy's crazy like I'm here because I don't because I messed up big, you know, and mm-hmm. you're telling me that you're proud of me. So now a couple years down the road, I get it now. You know, it, it's a, it's a huge thing to say, like, my life is unmanageable and I need help. Oh yeah. You know, that's a big thing. And I get it about the men. Men, I think have a harder time having a safe place to talk about things because it's not just about ego. It's how we're raised. We're raised that the man's supposed to be the provider and the strong one. Mm-hmm. And you know what I'm saying? The leader of the household. And how can those three a person with those three qualities have an issue that they can't manage on their own. Oh yeah. You know, that's, that's huge. We need more safe places to speak. Uh, yeah. I, I'm a, I'm a big, big advocate of safe spaces. Hmm. 
it's interesting now. So you get out the first day you use meth. Mm-hmm. You come to this realization. So if you could, what was that process like, uh, the journey, the changing? Like, mm-hmm. I, I know for me, like, once mentally I make my mind up about something, I'm like, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it seems like it becomes easier because you, you've committed in your mind to doing it. Now, but I know what addictions are a little different. But that journey, when you started, when you knew that was it, like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm done. Like, mm-hmm. I have something, I have my children, I, I just can't live like this anymore. What was that process like trying to start over for you? Um, It has been soul crushing to say the least. You know, you really have to let go of of beliefs that we didn't even know were beliefs, things that were ingrained to us as, as, as children, you know, the things, the way that we grew up, like you really have to get to a place where it's like, and I didn't know this at first, Mm -hmm. you know, at first, at first I still thought I could do this myself. Um, and Rome is really lucky to have a place like Living Proof because that place, I, I, I give that place a ton of credit for, for my success because it is a safe space for all areas. It's a safe space if it's drugs, if it's mental health, if it's eating disorders, you know, there's art classes and workout classes. Like it's just a place where you can go and be around people who are not going to judge you. And I, that gives us a lot of power. I don't, I don't think there was like, that was a light switch moment, but since then it's been work and it's, it's up and it's down and it's, I get back into old behaviors and I'll start lying to people or I won't be so, um, like my integrity, I'll do things and I'll see that people notice and I will not acknowledge it. Like being late. Okay. Used to, I would have messaged you five minutes before I was supposed to be here and said, I'll be there in five minutes. I knew I was going to be late when I left my house. Mm-hmm. So that, so that's immediately when I should, you know, like yeah. though that's a change for me. That's a change for me. Um, and it's those things being open, learning to be open and say, I really don't know anything. And there are a lot of people who have gone through this situation before. And a lot of people who have information that could be useful for me and just being open to that, yeah. that, that is its journey. I'm on this journey now. You know, we learn things every single day but we don't arrive. You know, I had to get to a point where I recognized that too. I'm not going to just be better one day. It's a journey. It's, it's a lifelong journey. Yeah. It's going to, I'm going to have to also, I know when we focus on certain areas of our life, like by default, we neglect other areas of our life. So if I'm working really hard on being like a great mother, I'm probably neglecting work or I'm probably neglecting some other things, which that's just the balance, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, it's those little things. If we can normalize that those little things happen and say, I know that you mastered this at one point in time, but we slipped off somewhere and that's okay. You can master it again. You can get back to that point. It's, you're not a complete failure. You know, if we can normalize things like that, I think people would have such a better shot of it's all self. It's yeah. all self-esteem. Building that self-esteem and that self-worth up. If we could change the narrative in any situation that we're in. It, yeah, I call it a giving yourself permission to have small failures. Yeah, to be human. Yeah, because if you put two, it, when you mess up, and no matter what you're doing, you have to be able to recognize that mm-hmm. and then say, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to get back on. I'm mm-hmm. going to get up and keep moving. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a setback, but mm-hmm. it doesn't, I don't have to, st- I don't have to just destroy everything I've worked for mm-hmm. because I had a setback. Mm-hmm. And that can be hard. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Especially when a coping skill that you have is drugs and it might not be an ideal situation, but you're familiar with managing it. Yeah. You're familiar with navigating a situation where everybody is crazy and you're crazy and it's comfortable because mm-hmm. you're familiar with it and it's easy to go back to. And so we see lots of stuff like that. People relapse and then they die, Yeah, you know, because they, they go, they've been clean for a year and they go right back to using as much or more than they were using before, you know, because that's, we just pick right back up and AA and NA are such a huge you know, such a huge resource, you know, even just to sit in a room. I used to go to meetings just because my kids were watched for an hour and I could sit there and I could vent or I could listen or, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like it was an hour away from my children that I didn't feel guilty about. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you talk about drug addiction and congratulations on on a, on a journey you own and being where you are, because I do, we all know mm-hmm. Drugs, not just meth, cocaine, but even alcohol. I think alcohol, to mm-hmm. me, is, is the biggest drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that it's legal, but it kills more people and damages more families than any other drug, uh, probably all of them combined. But the narrative, I, I agree, we have to change the narrative around drug addiction. And so much so that I think, you know, we create, we create these situations where we make it uncomfortable comfortable for people to say I need help and when we do this I think a lot of people who have messed up are so ashamed or so frightened of what people will say and do and treat them that they they they're stuck and we they have people that supposedly love them care for them but yet there's clearly something that won't allow them to feel comfortable or safe enough to say look I need help without being judged Mm -hmm. I don't know how we get to that point, but I do remember, you know, just being vulnerable because you're sharing your story. I remember being young. I was young. I think I was in high school, probably around a sophomore year or something. And my brother had been in and out of prison for drugs. And I can remember asking my mom, like he had came back home and he was having one of his episodes. And I remember asking my mom, like, why do you keep letting him come back? And because I was always a good kid, you know, I was the youngest one. I, I just I was a good kid. No problem. And she looked at me and she said, do you think I love you more because you are a good kid? She said, no. She said, if anything, I love your brother more because he needs it. And of course, at that point, I didn't understand it. I'm crushed. Here I am making A's in school, you no know, college prep track. I'm doing all the right things. But as I got older and older, and you know, you have your own children and you grow up, you realize I, and I was so glad that my mom was that kind of mom, because I think my mom was, was great. Flawed in so many ways, but, but just great. And I understood that, that, and to this day, my brother has been clean more than 20 something years, but she never gave up on him. And she always created that space for us as her children that, you know, no matter what we did, she would always be there and love us. She didn't condone it. And she was very, clear about what she did and did not appreciate but it was never a question about her love and I do believe that's one of the things that allowed my brother you know to get better was that he always knew he had a home he had a mom that loved him and even when some of his siblings couldn't stand him you know that that space he had that space that he knew he could always go back to and I just I just think it's so hard for so many people that they lack that. And I was reading this study and it said that people who the majority of people who commit suicide felt like they didn't have not one person they could talk to. And I'm thinking, wow, 
not one single person. And so I think when you are talking about, you know, this failure, getting back up, being honest with yourself, it's so needed. But I think being humble, as you say, you know, just really being humble. But as a community, mm-hmm. we have to do our part as well. I think it's so easy for us to say that's that person's problem. Uh, that's, that's that family situation. But drug addiction affects all of us directly or indirectly. So I want to kind of shift. So you're out, you're on your journey. How did housing, public housing, come into the story? So prior to going into, I, I um, DFAX was involved with my life for a year before I went into rehab. So I was literally ducking and dodging. I was going to take drug tests. I failed like nine drug tests before I ever went into rehab. Like it, I, I tried to put it off as I only went to rehab initially because I didn't want to be looked at as a mom who didn't try to get her kids back. Yeah, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't like, I didn't have that epiphany in the beginning. Just so you say, I used to be a case manager, mm-hmm. case worker, so I know <laughs> yeah. that, those cases. Yeah, know. that was exactly right. I yeah. would, the girl who was my first um, case worker, it was her, it was our very first caseload. Mm. And it was, it was super easy to manipulate, manipulate that, yeah, yeah, manipulate that situation and like, let it ride as long as it could. Um, so, like I said, a, a year prior to when defects got involved, I was a, excuse me, not a, yeah, 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 a year prior to when defects got involved, I was evicted. That's when my children were left, taken out of my custody. Defect, I'm sorry, I'm so confused on my timeline. Anyways, in 2015, I was evicted from a home and I filled out an application for housing at that time. Um, I went into rehab in 2016 and when I got out of um, inpatient and was in transitional, getting ready to leave transitional in 2017, that was when they called, they sent me a letter, I actually got a letter at the place saying that my application had come up, which it was, that's how the Lord works. Mm -hmm. That's how the Lord, and it's, that's been probably the biggest thing is, is sitting back and saying, okay, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm gonna, I, 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 let me be receptive to whatever it is because I, I want to control things. We just can't. So housing, I'm sorry, I got off track. No problem. Housing, um, housing was a godsend, literally, literally. It was, uh, and, and the way we moved in, I've, I've talked to a lot of people, you know, it was a friend of mine. We were not related. Mm-hmm. We moved in together and I had past bills in my name. So she actually became head of household and we lived together for two years before she moved out. And it's been, it's been a godsend. It's given me the freedom to be able to find what it is that I need to be doing and not be worrying about all the worldly problems right now. And I don't know that that's what everybody um, can use that kind of a resource for, Mm -hmm. but I wish that people would just open up our minds and realize that like, we really all don't know what we're doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's really like, get up and we're just gonna, we're gonna figure this out. Like we might have a plan, but stuff happens all the time and plans change all the time. And if more people realize that more people don't know what they're doing, I think it would make it again to change that narrative. Mm-hmm. There's not just a group of people who just really have it together. Everybody has problems. And oh, yeah. changing the narrative is going to be, it's just my mission. It's my mission for a lot of things. I, so I'm curious. So you moving, so you're in housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have your kids, but you said you have your 
two of your kids back now? Mm-hmm. My daughter still lives with her father during the week. Mm-hmm. She comes to me on the weekends, um, but he's married and they have two incomes, whereas I have one income and mm-hmm. have two children. So I talked to an attorney, but it doesn't, it's not in her best interest that she live with me yeah. and us be struggling even more, you know? Yeah. Plus you have that relationship with her. Oh yeah. And her dad and her stepmom. Yeah. Well, that's I'm, great. I'm, she's one of my closest friends. Her stepmom is. Well, that's great. Mm-hmm. So moving into housing, at that time, what was your mindset about moving into housing? And the reason I say this mm-hmm. is because there's such a stigma mm-hmm. attached to public housing. Uh, I lived in public housing uh, at one point uh, growing up as a child myself, and I just remember, quote unquote, moving to the projects. Mm-hmm. We had failed, you know, because we had a home at one point, then we moved into an apartment. Now we are going to the projects. And I can remember having a, being embarrassed, Mm -hmm. that whole, you know, I got to move to the projects. And, but yet, when I, as I recall, that was some of my fondest times. Because when I moved to public housing, we had like a little community where I lived. Mm -hmm. And the guys I grew up with, the things we did during school, after school. But that stigma was there for me. What about for Mm -hmm. you when you moved to housing? Absolutely. Yeah, it was a... As if there hadn't been enough blows to my ego up to that point. That was just another, like, here you go. You know, here, here's actually the red A that you are going to wear on <laughs> your... Yeah, here you are. <laughs> um, and I had to tell myself all kind of stories that weren't true to make myself feel better about it for a long time. You know, I had to tell myself that I was, I was there for some other divine purpose, you know, that didn't have anything to do with me. I was just being used, you know, mm-hmm. um, because of the stigma, because I, it, it was easier to do that than it was to say, this is where I'm at in my life. This is, this is my best option right now. This is, this is what I'm capable of. You know who, nobody wants to say that. Nobody wants to say yeah. what I'm capable of is, is the thing that is, is got this huge stigma on it. Cause it does like, I mean, I didn't tell people for a very long time, you know, you want to be proud about the way that you're, how things are changing, but I, I couldn't tell anybody for a long time because I was embarrassed. Um, I had, I had an idea in my, I had an idea in my head that that was where you went when you were poor, Yeah. when you didn't have anything, you know, when you, no, that changed, that changed over time. Um, when you get, you, you remember bigger picture. I remember we prayed for a big backyard. We prayed for a big backyard, leaving that, leaving transitional housing. Please Lord, just oh, give us a house with a big backyard. And we lived at, in an apartment that has like, I mean, it's a football field, easy, behind our house. And so sitting out there one day, and I was like, this is insane. You know, we, we forget. Like, we have a picture in our mind of what mm-hmm. we ask for. And um, we oftentimes don't get that picture in our mind, but we get what we ask for, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I remember just sitting there, and that was probably one of those moments where it, the, the narrative for me started to change. Like, stop being so ungrateful, Christina. You know, if this isn't what you want your narrative to say, then stop being so ungrateful. Or you can just stay here. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be any different. We moved um, from one in the same neighborhood, but from one street to another street. And um, and that I, I, I reverted back to the same old thing. I was like, dang, you know, here we go again. I don't know anybody. And there are women who have children on my road. Um, my neighbors are super friendly. Like they know me by name. I know them by name. We go over there like. I could send my kids over there and say, hey, can you go get me an egg? Or me walk over there. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, when I first moved out there even, you know, a girl came and she was like, Christina, you're parked in the yellow. You probably want to move so you don't get a ticket. 
And, and I thought, oh, you know, that it was, we had some issues. We did have some issues. There was some kids at the very end of the road. I left some stuff on the porch as we were moving in and then it got taken immediately. Mm. And then we saw the little girl pushing the stroller, you know? And so I, I, I stopped my truck in the road and I got out and I was like, look, we're neighbors now. Okay. You don't take stuff from me. I don't take stuff from you. Actually, I'm going to be looking out for you and I want you to be looking out for me. Okay. It's like, I'm going to be home in 15 minutes. I want everything that you took to be back on my porch and, and we won't talk about this anymore. She said, yes, ma'am. And it was there. And those little kids will come, they, they will come and play in my yard, you know, cause it's a safe space. Yeah. That's what we got to do. It doesn't matter if it's for kids or if it's for adults or mental health or addiction, create a safe space for people to talk about that stuff. So what development do you live in currently? Um, oh gosh, what's it called? John Graham. John Graham. Mm-hmm. And this, actually, I think it's one that develops the most children in it, actually, mm-hmm. is John Graham's. You know, living in housing, public housing, I know for us, as a, at the time I was in high school, um, yeah, I was in high school, then we moved. My mom had a house built because we owned land, but mm-hmm. she had a house built uh, in Gore, and we left public housing. But looking back, I realized my mom needed that she needed that that space she needed that opportunity she needed the time to become financially stable again she needed the time to be financially solvent and being able to save Mm -hmm. and without public housing Mm -hmm. i don't know where we would have ended up Mm -hmm. but i know that time in public housing for me now looking back you know i enjoyed it I, i thought it was great uh, because they was very well built. They weren't the most attractive at the time, but they was very well built. And I felt safe where I lived, very safe. But looking back, clearly the cost, she was able to maintain, get things in order, enough so that she could have a, a house built and we moved. And so my senior year, you know, we moved into a house, me and my mom, that she had built. But, you know, I would be remiss if I if I don't recognize that, you know, had it not been for public housing, I don't know where we would have ended up. And yes, we had relatives, we had, she had siblings and people say things, but no one, uh, that charity runs out after a while. And I'm grateful that we, that public housing was there for us because it, it, it clearly provided my mom what she needed and the opportunity mm-hmm. to get, to regain her footing. And so that's why I, for me, it's so important that we do change the narrative on public housing. Mm-hmm. And I know public housing here, uh, Ms. Hudson has been really big about changing the look and feel of public housing. Um, I know they're getting ready to do some redevelopment over there in John Graham's, but I was on the tour when I started this job here. And I didn't believe some of the housing that I was seeing was public housing. I had driven by a lot of them. I didn't realize it was public housing because they are so nice. Mm-hmm. And when you go into them, the amenities, the quality of the things from the, the flooring to the, just everything, it's like, no, this is not a cheap home. This mm-hmm. is a home. And Miss Hudson, the commitment to making it a home that you know people can be proud of to mm-hmm. live in. And I, I have to commend her for that, but having that opportunity mm-hmm. to be in public housing, to have what you ask for, I think a lot of times people don't recognize that like you know it could like this is not the last stop by no means Mm -hmm. but you could be living much worse Mm -hmm. and this gives you opportunity to regain your foot and get back in the game so with that what kind of 
do you have a sense of community where you live? Yeah, we do have a sense. Of, I, I, I work hard to try to create that just for me and my family. I feel like if I make eye contact with people and I acknowledge people and they can acknowledge me, I feel like people won't, they'll be less inclined to approach me negatively. People ask me all the time, they're like, do you have a lot of problems out here? And I'm like, no, like, you know, like the worst thing was the fireworks that went on during the, when everyone was quarantined, like, and that's not a big deal, you know, not compared to, not what people are assuming goes on, yeah. you know? Yeah, there is a, there is a, there is a good sense of community. People walk around, like, I let my kids go outside and play. My kids are young. And I let my kids go outside and play. They they know where they need to stay at. And I let them go out there and the door's closed. And, you know, just peek out on them. The neighbors will keep an eye on them. The neighbors will come tell me if, you know, hey, can your kid come play in, in my yard? Mm-hmm. You know, or uh, is it okay if my kid's over here? Like, yeah, there's if kids are out there playing and supper's done, like we've, we're making extra plates. Like, it's a huge, of course it's a community. You know, we all live there together. That is, that is so great because I, I do think... Kids don't really care so much. It's, it's, it's the adults. We bring the problems. Kids just want to play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kids just want to play. So you own this journey. You're still on this journey. We're all on this journey. Um, so what are you doing now? What is What, uh, what do you want to focus on, I guess? Um, so my mission statement, my personal mission statement is to promote, empower, um, promote and empower personal development for myself and for the people around me. Um, and so there's a lot of things that I'm able to do right now. So I'm co-teaching a parenting class at Restoration Rome for parents whose um, children have been removed from their custody. They're in foster care. And we actually just did a panel. My, my, narr- my, my mission statement also is to change the narrative and level the playing field. Um, we had a panel a couple nights ago with um, a foster parent, you know, mothers who had been reunited with their children, um, successful people in the community who came from rough past. We had defects there. We had um, the CASA there. And then we had questions that our parents could ask these, the panel members. And um, it was, it was an incredible experience. The parents felt safe enough to talk about these things and to like, cause it's a big deal when you have your child taken and this is off topic, I know, but, but it's oh, relevant. Really? I feel like when you have your child taken, um, it's not so much that somebody comes in your home and says, I'm better than you, but they're taking away your child that you feel like is just your right, you yeah. know? And so you don't put me on the bottom of the ladder. I usually, I put myself on the bottom of the ladder. Right. And then as we go on that journey, we encounter people who have put themselves on the top of that ladder for whatever reason, maybe they're the ones who are, able to care for your child maybe mm-hmm. they're the ones who are telling you that you have to check off these boxes and and we it's easy to fall into ego so i find that we're just on this uneven and then it's very hard that's not a safe space for a mother or a father or parents who are trying to come up this ladder that doesn't create a safe space and so the the panel gosh it was incredible that that's where my that's where my calling's at right now i'm in the process of um getting practitioner trained for TBRI, which is what is how I went there because I had issues with my son. And that's where I've learned that trauma has a whole lot to do with, with his experience and my experience and my behaviors. I still have really negative behaviors that I have to, I have to recognize and check myself on, you know? And, and if I can't do that for myself, then I can't walk my child through that. 
Yeah. And that's what TBRI, um, TBRI has changed a lot. My goal with TBRI is to take that to other mothers and fathers who have lost their children and who have gone through addiction. So we can, again, change that narrative. We've got to build back that self-worth and that self-esteem so that way we can be open to ideas from people who have had success and, and change the narrative for, for everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Envision Center podcast. And a special thank to Christina Cosley for sharing such an amazing story. We look forward to sharing more stories like Christina's and others, and even the history of public housing. So stay tuned for more from the Envision Center podcast.